Good morning. This is the 3CR Gardening Show. I'm Virginia Haywood. I'm actually talking to people. I'm actually in the studio, which is all very exciting. This morning, I'm talking to Simon Rickard, who gardener and musician, and Tim Sampson from Diggers and the Diggers Foundation. Good morning, Simon. Good morning, Virginia. Morning, listeners. Good morning, Tim. Good morning, Virginia. Good morning, everyone out there in the gardening world. So those two are coming to us from through Zoom. So we're beating the horrible virus and we're actually managing to do a live program. So where are you at at the moment, Tim? I'm sitting in my front room looking out past uh, an Andean walnut and a Wigandia tree toward Port Phillip Bay. Sounds good to me. Which is a lovely spot, I must say, actually. Um, it, well, firstly, it saved the drive into the studio. Not, not, that, not that listeners care about my drive. But, but it is great to be able to sit here and doing the gardening show and actually be looking across my garden. Yes, yes. And uh, last week's th- said the same. It was very nice not to have to drive in in the dark. <laughs> <laughs> yes, true. But, oh, I suppose we're a couple of weeks away from daylight savings. I do feel like spring is well and truly on the move. Absolutely. Some, it's light. Despite some, despite some chilly breeze today, but I think, uh, you know, the, the, the garden's starting to pop. And it's light at six. And Simon, you are? I'm at, I'm at home in, uh, in Trentham on Jarjawarong country up in central Victoria. And, uh, yeah, same, I'm in my front room, just like Tim, looking out in my garden, seeing how much work needs to be done and, you know, seeing weeds and gaps and all of the things that I haven't done yet by this time of year. And I've also got some really nice uh, sort of collectible little succulent plants on my windowsill too, which I'm, I'm looking at and ad- admiring. Micah, I had an open garden last weekend, except mm-hmm. I didn't, of course. Um, I was going to say, how did you pull that off? Yeah, well, I didn't. Open Gardens Victoria, I certainly didn't. And although we've rescheduled it for the last weekend of November, so maybe it will happen. It's a big maybe still, I think. But because of that and lockdown, my garden's actually in quite good shape because lockdown meant that I had all this time to spend in the garden and the threat of an open garden meant that I did it. I got out there and I had, you know, when you do your garden all the time, but when you've got something special coming up, you look at it a bit differently. So I've pulled out, I've taken out all sorts of things. I've taken out big things. I've made more void. You know, I had too much mass, not enough void. Hmm. And so deadlines are brilliant. Deadlines are brilliant for for getting your garden. But the thing I didn't do because of the open garden was I didn't do some of my pruning. Mm. So now... I'm getting in with the pruning. I didn't prune some of my big salvias. You know, I've got these huge salvias um, that are 15 foot high and in flower at the moment, which is pretty nice. Um, Tim Boone's just finishing. Uh, the pink icicles is finished. So I've got I've had very pink at this time of the year. My garden, pink and yellow, because of all the all all the wattle. And all it's, the... a, it's a it's a good time of the year to have such strong colours, though, isn't it? Yes. Sort of, I find that this time of the year is, is you're sort of coming out of the drab of winter. You're looking for that that bright pop. Whereas I think if you're getting those kind of colours in February, you might be a bit uh, offended. <laughs> too, too hot. You don't want hot. Yeah. I mean, I really understand why blue and white are the colours for summer. Mm. You know, for us in particular, yeah, yes. that sort of cool, calm. That, you know. 
that an evening of cool, it's amazing how the palette colour will affect your mood, isn't it? Yes, absolutely. Mm. And the cantua is out. Now, that hot, hot pink, the cantua, listeners, is the flowers of the Inca. So it comes from the high Andes and it's a very ordinary plant, but it has the most brilliant hot pink flowers at this time of year. And you just do you get do you get honey eaters going to those? Cause I do, I do. Yeah. And it's amazing. It's, it's amazing watching um, our, our office at Diggers is um, out the back of Dramana on the flats and amongst the um, a bit of a forested area, and we've planted an area there that's got um, a, a preservation garden. So it's got a whole heap of all sorts of exotic um, flowering things uh, and trees and all sorts. But the bird life there at the moment is just astounding. I hopped out of the car the other morning to, to go into the office and just sort of stood there for a couple of minutes and listened to the chorus. Mm. It's amazing. Fantail cuckoos and you know, cuckoo shrikes and, and, and honey eaters darting all over the place. It's yes. just, and far more than you get just in the bush, you know, 100 metres away. It's amazing. Well, look how the possums always choose to come to the exotics. Yes, yes. Yeah. Making yeah. people very unhappy as their roses <laughs> disappear. <laughs> I got I got a possum eating my lemon tree at the moment. Actually, yeah. in fact, eating the lemons like it's it eats the rind off yes. the lemons and it starts to get into the fruit. Yes. Oh, well, mine don't go for the fruit. They just eat the rind. I find all these perfectly juiceable lemons, but with no rind on them on the ground because I've got sixteen or seventeen lemon trees. Yeah, okay. which is a bit excessive, but it does mean I can easily share them with the possums. <laughs> It's an interesting palate, I would have thought, to yeah. eat lemon rind. Yeah. Do you have lemons in your lemon tree? Absolutely not. Oh, me. Sorry, Tim. Sorry. No, no, you. <laughs> no, you, you go, Simon. Simon. Me? Yeah. I don't have a lemon tree. It's far too cold where I live. It's, oh. it's four degrees outside now. And, you know, we, we already had minus seven degrees back in May. Um, so, no, no lemon trees for me, unfortunately. But I have a great berry growing climate. And so I can grow fantastic berries. And when Melbourne is sweltering away in summer, it's lovely and mild up here. And there are, there are you know, oodles of berries to be had. Well, I have to say, picking berries is a, sort of a full-time job in summer, you know, even with uh, what have I got, 14 raspberry plants. You know, I need to set aside an hour a day to go and harvest a kilo and a half of berries. So it's um, I can't decide if it's a chore or, or meditation or somewhere in between. I Glass think... half empty or half full. Exactly. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> I have a green gauge, and I, which I, when I, li I lived 20 years in Britain, and I just adored the green gauge. And this last couple of years when we've had so much rain, which I have just adored, oh. uh, the green gauge has been um, fruiting, which it hasn't done for the years before. Do you, have, okay. do you know the green it's gauge? A, it's a plum. Yeah, yeah I have yeah. a green gauge tree too. And they are very hit and miss. They're not reliable croppers by any means. But when they do crop, you know that the fruit is so special. Originally from um, Armenia, actually, and uh, eventually wound up in France and uh, then from France to England. And then the guy who imported it to England in the 18th century, his name was Thomas Gage. Um, and he just decided, well, I'll just name it after myself, even though it's from, you know, it. Armenia via France. In France, they call it Ren Claude, Queen Claude. Um, so, yeah, interesting, interesting plant, but not a reliable crop so, at all. And what, even because both of you are in fairly cool climates, I mean, you especially, Simon, as you just talked mm. about, is, is a green gauge more suited to a more European high rainfall I mean, uh, kind of climate, just, just for the <laughs> listeners out there? I think it probably needs a, a decent amount of winter chill to crop. Mm. 
Yeah. Uh, That's so my I've suspicion. assumed it's the rain. You think it's the chill? I think it's the chill. Yeah. 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 But, you know, and, and for me, Asian plums don't. So I can't grow, you know, satsumas or blood plums or mariposa or narrabeen or any of those Asian plum varieties because they flower so early, yeah. um, mm. you know, in winter for me. And then the flowers get frosted off. So they just never bear a crop. Mm. Mm. So for me, the European plums are better. But you've noticed a bit, Simon, and we've spoken about this ourselves, that, that your climate is shifting pretty significantly. What, you've been in your garden for... 16 what? years. 16 years, yeah, okay. I was going to say 10, but the time gets away. It does. Um, and over 16 years, you've seen a, a notable warming. Is that also seen a notable sort of opposite end where you get those more extremes of cold as well? That's right, Tim. Yeah, that's exactly right. It's the extremes I'm noticing more of. So we get hotter days than we used to get and we get colder days than we used to get. So the minus seven I mentioned before was a record for, for Trentham, for my town, um, since records began in the late 19th century. Um, and similarly, you know, in 2009, the week after the Black Saturday bushfires, we had 43 degrees, which is unheard of. You know, mm. we've never had temperatures in the 40s in the you know, in the 150 years since records began. Yeah. It's, it's interesting that, you know, we think of a shifting climate and we're clearly now seeing actual climate change. It's interesting that the we, we sort of think the natural re, um, extension of that is that everything gets warmer. Mm. You know, global warming, that's the very the, the title of it. I think yeah. one of the interesting things, Tim, is that people who are opposed to us doing anything or getting rid of coal or whatever, they say, well, we're getting colder. But in actual yeah. fact, climate, climate change is about extremes, not about yeah, one that's or right. The other. It's it, it's about volatility and it's mm. about mm. and mm. noting change and how we see it. Our, our gardeners are very attuned to it. Mm. Uh, be in, in, I mean, because if you think about citrus, um, there are citrus that will take significant cold. Like you put them on a trifoliate rootstock, which is basically a deciduous um, a, a, a deciduous citrus, so it'll take cold. But they also need a lot of heat units to, to to actually bear their fruit properly. So maybe as we shift along citrus, you might be able to get some citrus. On. Yes, making climate change work for me. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, and some of the more cold tolerant um, citrus like yuzu and mandarins might be okay. But like you say, it's the summer lack of summer heat as well. Mm. So although we, we have spikes of heat in summer now, we don't have consistent summer weather. So mm. I can't grow tomatoes, which is really embarrassing um, for a professional gardener. I mean, you, you know, Tim, that when I was a diggers, I grew oodles of tomatoes, but I can't grow them here at all because even if we get a lovely warm day in summer, even if it's 25, you know, 28 degrees Celsius, it'll still go back down to single digits at night or 10 degrees mm. Celsius at night. And so the, the tomatoes won't ripen. They grow and you can end up with 40 kilos of green tomatoes by the end of the season, but you never get a ripe one. I, so, can't, I you know, can't grow tomatoes because I can't cope with the watering because I'm, <laughs> I'm only on my own water and I spend quite a lot of time in town you know I go down to Melbourne for the because I'm a guide at the botanic gardens and I do various things there so I'll stay overnight one overnighter during hot weather that's enough to finish your tomatoes if there's no water provided and I'm, I think you need a, I think you need an irrigation time I'm scared of that because I am totally on tank water and something goes yeah. wrong and I'm not there and it just runs and runs and I've got no water no water for the toilets no it's water true. for the drinking yeah I have the same yeah. well, I'm on tank water here too um but I do grow tomatoes because I'm the growing rest them this of, year. Well, the rest of my garden doesn't get watered at all, apart mm. from my vegetable garden in the summer. I do not water anything. It's the, it's it gets 
it's, I mean, I've enjoyed the last couple of years because I can establish a lot, a lot more plants because we've had a bit of moisture in the soil. But basically, I, anything I plant outside the vegetable garden's just got to fend for itself. Mm. It's been it's very, very, um, it's been a very decisive editing process, I must say. <laughs> some things just have you had some surprises, Tim? I mean, has something surprised you? Yeah, I think um, I think the things that and probably the things that have surprised me have been some of the trees that I've got going. Um, I've, uh, I put some, I put a, a capoc tree out the front. I thought, oh, that, how will that go? I thought it might have needed a bit more, but it's actually really thrived. Um, I've got a macadamia that I don't water at all. Uh, now, I suppose that they do come from, you know, climates where there's a, where, you know, it's, it's an Australian native, but it's absolutely thriving. I've never, never put any water anywhere near it. Um, so I've got these little gems all over the place. There's, in the last couple of years, I think, have perhaps lulled me into a false sense that, you know, that there's still probably some death to be had when we come yeah. back to an El Nino summer. <laughs> it's true. Um, but, but, but I guess at the same time, that, that opens up gaps, um, gives me another shot at something that's, that's, that I'm going to have another crack at. One of the things I find extraordinary is the camellias, I've, particularly the Williamsii, mm. because they, mm-hmm. they are so hardy. I've got about 30 mm. camellias throughout the garden and they are just mm. so hardy. They just waltzed through the drought. And of course, mm. they're as happy as Larry now that the water is actually forming. So that's mm. been well, quite that, interesting. I think, I think there's something in that that cycle of establishment. You know, one, if if you do have a couple of benign years like we've had, for things that have got a decent root system that can get going, get down, they'll get going and they'll get their roots deep, and then they'll survive the hotter zones. I just um, wish I'd planted a handkerchief tree at the beginning of all this, which I didn't. <laughs> yeah, defi- yeah. Well, because maybe defi- if you if you'd done that. If you planted a Davidia, you know, two years ago, it would have been well established by now. Yeah. Mm. However, but I did another, another favourite of the possums, though. I think that one. This is the Three mm. CR Garden Show. I'm Virginia, and you're listening to me, Tim Sampson, and Simon Rickard. If you wish to contact us, you can email us on three cr dot org gardening at 3cr.org.au or you can text us on 0488 809 855. If you want to ring in, you can speak to our producer who will send through a message, but we can't actually talk to you. The on-air line to the producer is 94190155. So there you can have a word with Gab. Yes, What's I the just, text line again? The text line is 0488 809855 and the email is gardening at 3cr.org.au I've got a couple of announcements that I should do too there is from the 11th to the 26th of, of September there's a Victorian Nature Festival which is run by Dwelp it's mainly virtual experiences Forests of the Seas, Mount Tulibawong, Threatened Species, A Welcome to Country, Cultural Burns, and both the botanic gardens are involved. There's a southern brown bandicoot, one coming out of Cranbourne. And for people who can actually get to the gardens in Melbourne, they've got uh, both virtual and live. So that is something that you just go to Vic Nature Festival um, on, on the internet. And then we've also had a new ebook, which has been we've been told about, on grafting by John Mason and ACS Distance Education. 
So those of you who are interested in grafting, this is a really good, simple way of finding out about it. So for that, you go www.acsbookshop, in one word, .com, and follow on looking for the grafting. And we also had a request come in from Sandy Tui in Ashwood. This is for you too. She's looking for a screening shrub, 1.5 to 2 metres high. It gets early morning and late afternoon sun and it's under an evergreen tree and she's trying to screen out next door. Have we got any suggestions? How, how wide should this plant grow? Because, of course, the taller plants get, the wider they get as well. Or is she willing to be able to, to trim the hedge? Well, she'll have to trim, won't she? Well, not necessarily, mm -hmm. but, yes, you always have to think of trimming. Uh, she says 1.5 wide. Two metres high. Mm -hmm. Look, I, I think Westringia naringa is a, is a plant that I use a lot. Um, it's a it's an Osbreed selection of um, Westringia uh, fruticosa, and it, it's it's a very tidy plant, even without clipping or anything on just on its own. Um, and it will uh, cope with quite a high degree of shade um, as well as sun. So I think Westringia naringa would be my top pick. How about you, Tim? Hmm. I um. I was just thinking. I, I got a, a tree fell over on my neighbour's boundary in the middle of the winter, and I thought, what is the fastest thing I can possibly put there? To not that I don't like my neighbour. <laughs> Hi, Joff, if you're listening. Um, but what is the fastest thing I could put there um, to uh, to screen it out? And it's an odd selection. Um, but bear with me. Um, I have some Miscanthus giganteus, which is the large Miscanthus. And it is by far the fastest thing I know that grows. Um, and it will it will get to two, two and a half metres in a season. Uh, and so I planted three or four of them in a nice sort of clump together. And they will screen that out, no problem, which is great. So there's problem solved um, from a screening point of view, except every winter I'm going to have to chop them down. So in the winter I have to bear, because I have to chop them. I, I can leave the dead stems there, but they'll be much but better. But at some stage them. you have to cut it. Yeah, so I have to cut it down. So swings and roundabouts in the in the winter I'm not out in that part of the garden much so I'm going to cop with that um, but that that was that's what immediately came to mind as my solution for screening. I think the wastrinja sounds better than that. Yeah, probably. Yeah, Simon wins. <laughs> You've been told him. Yeah. <laughs> well, it swings and roundabouts though, isn't it, Virginia? I mean, you know, Tim's traded off speed for permanent speed, absolutely. for example. Yeah. And perhaps uh, also the Miss Kansas has probably got slightly higher water needs um, initially than the, the Westringia. Which, so, which know, Westringia? Could you spell the latter half of its name? Yeah, N Naringa, N-A-R-I-N-G-A, Westringia Naringa. And it's important to get, you know, a variety that suits your purpose because there are there are little ground cover Westringias mm -hmm. like Mundi that's only this tall and, and Grey Box is only like this. And then you've got big tall tall ones as well like Winyabi Gem and, and mm -hmm. so forth. <clears throat> but, you know, yeah. I, I, I think this raises an interesting point about, about trade-offs and swings and roundabouts um, for our listeners because there is no one perfect solution to any particular function in the garden. Mm -hmm. You know, you just have to decide what you're willing to accept and what you're willing to give up in, you know, um, to, to, to have most of what you want. Yeah, it's because it's, I would compare that or contrast my miscanthus to a Petosporum bicolor I have on the other side, which is a, um, so it's a, a narrow-leafed form of, of, of the native Petosporum. And it's a really good, neat screening shrub, but it's the slowest thing on earth. Like, it's, 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 it's taken, I think, five years to get, you know, enough establishment to feel like it's anything like a shrub. Mm -hmm. 
So I just didn't have the patience for one of them there. Oh, I mean, okay. yeah, so, so maybe I should be sticking a, a whiskeringer in there as well. See, well, I, thing, I, would, I, mean, I would think sorry. of a camellia Williams CI in there too because that's mm. evergreen. Mm. They're shrubs. Also not fast. Not, I mm. mean, the, the, the classiest hedges and the classiest trees are not fast. Mm. You know, yeah. That's why they're classy. Things that grow fast grow rank as well. They, have, they make big yeah. cells. They can be quite brittle and fall apart quickly. I mean, I've literally never had a client say to me, Simon, I want a slow-growing tree. I want a classy, <laughs> slow-growing. It's always, yeah. I want a fast-growing yeah. tree. You know, I want it to be five metres tall by Christmas. And, of so, course, and the upshot you know. is they're unhappy in the end because they do get something that, isn't as well, well, I mean, well, the maintenance contractor gets a good deal because there's lots of work to do. Exactly. Trimming up the uh, ornamental pears. I mean, ornamental pears, Pyrrhus, Calariana, and Casey Point, they grow very fast but very rank, and so then they just tend to fall mm. apart. Mm. So, you know, if that's not an issue for you, if you think you can maintain a tree like a like an ornamental pear, Pyrrhus, Calariana, um, then fine, by all means, plant one. But if you're getting older and, you, you know, you don't want to be on ladders every five minutes because ladders, of course, are the... The third biggest killer of Australian men, then maybe think about growing something else. Yeah, is it a, is it a real stat? Really? Third biggest killer of Australian men. So when I wow. design gardens, I try to design them to be ladder free. <laughs> okay. Oh, you're doing social good. <laughs> well, we have another oh, question, gang. Diana Diane Rowe from Templestowe has got an allegoin which is spread up fifteen feet wide. And she wants to know how to cut it back. Now, I've got a couple of allegoins that went completely nuts and I just hacked them. I cut them by two-thirds. But what would your and did they be? respond? Yep. How, how did they go? Yep. Took them, took them a year to recover from the viciousness of what I did. Yeah. But, but they're back completely flowering and needing another cut. Yeah, well, well I think there's the solution. I think it, they can take it. I would have been a bit hesitant. I've never cut one back that hard. And I, I, I kind of feel like they're one of those things like a wattle that if you cut it too back, cut back too hard, it's just going to go, that's too hard, I'm going to give up because they're kind of yeah. short-lived. Yeah, exactly. Uh, you know, wattles are a coloniser plant that are short-lived, so they typically, you know, the sort of more scrubby ones will, will not respond to a pruning. Mm. So I'm, I would have been a bit trepidatious to do that with my with that. Mm. that Allegony, as I call it. Yes. I'm not sure. There's, there's another uh, discussion. About and I call it allegony. So. Yeah, right. <laughs> I mean, that's the great thing about, you, you know, well, in this case, Greek, is that no one speaks ancient Greek anymore, so no one's going to correct us, and we all know what we're talking about. Yes, and so, but for I, those, I mean, I, sorry, go on. I was just going to say, for those that don't know, we're talking about the native hibiscus. Yeah. And I, I agree with Tim. You know, I, I, I think it's um, a lot of Mediterranean climate sh shrubs, not only from the Mediterranean, but from places like Australia uh, and the Aleogeny hugelii from South Australia in this Mediterranean climate strip. Um, you know, they can be, they are short lived and it can be a little bit touch and go. So it's the same with echiums. It's the same with lavender, the same with rosemary. You can cut them back hard and and be lucky and they'll respond or you can cut them back hard and they just think, oh, that's not, yeah. that's me I got, gone. I've got two rosemaries just there that I'm looking at that I cut back hard, knowing full well it was a gamble and, and I think I've lost the lottery on those. Two. And they're, they're quick enough to replace Yeah, that's they? right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And the other thing I would say about the, however we're meant to pronounce it, is that <laughs> I wouldn't prune it until November. I'd treat it like I'd treat ah. a fruit tree. I'd want to prune it after the first rush of the growing season so you don't prune it hard and then it just immediately starts to grow massively mm. yeah well that'll help 
that in the same way as you summer summer prune a fruit tree, that'll actually help contain its vigor because if if you you prune going into your growing season, you encourage that rank growth because mm. um, you've got a whole mm. season. If you cut it midsummer, it, it checks its growth a bit potentially. Yes, yeah, so I would say November on, you could have that. Diane could have a go at maybe pruning. I I would have a at least half, maybe not two thirds. Maybe I was just lucky, but I did go two thirds. I mm. always cut to where I can see. I don't go in with a chainsaw, Into the... which is what Craig would do, I might add. But I always go to where I can see a bud. I don't cut mm. into dead wood. I mean, obviously it's not dead, but, you know, wood that hasn't got growing. Yeah. growing to yes, that's important with the Mediterranean shrubs. Mm. Lavenders are like that too, you know, and anikiums. If you cut back into the brown wood, you can kiss them goodbye, really. Mm. So, yeah. Mm. And we also have one that's come in from Mary from Glenroy. She's an organic gardener struggling to keep kaikuyu and cooch grass coming in from the neighbour under the fence line, which is about 20 metres long. The neighbour's property is a foot or so below, so it's seeking the sun on her side. She's used torn-up newspaper for mulching and weed suppression. Do do we think that's any good? Apart from a concrete barrier... For the shared fence, can we recommend any material barrier to kukuyu or cooch? She also has the same problem with oxalis. She doesn't want to use Roundup. Well, on oxalis, Roundup is very slow to have any effect. Is there any other environmentally safe option to control it? Well, that's a hard one. I mean, with the oxalis, I just let it go. I've got heaps of oxalis. It's everywhere through the Yarra Valley, and I just Mm. pull out the leaves and don't let it flower and I pull out the leaves but I don't try and take out the bulbs I just try to weaken the bulbs by pulling out the leaves well that, that, that's right I mean it is a bulbous plant and at the time of year when it starts to flower the bulb is at its weakest um, because it, it's it's expended its energy in producing a flower and that's the time to to do something to it to break its life cycle now when I say do something to it that can be you know, mowing it or um, smothering it with mulch or spraying it with a herbicide. But you will need to do it over several seasons. It's not something that you can do in in one season and be done with it. Uh, You need to spend a few years being disciplined about it and and getting the timing right until the plant finally gets the message. Um, Tim, would you like to add anything? Yeah, I I agree with all that on oxalis. But I think oxalis is not a running thing. Well, it'll slowly colonise as the bulb move along. So if she's talking about on her fence line um, there's, and, and it's creeping in from the fence line, she's got a pretty good chance of actually intervening like Simon's talked about to, to, to stop it in its tracks. And also Cuc- to s- smothering it is a good idea too. Well, yeah, anything you can do to exhaust the reserves that's in those mm-hmm. tiny little bulbs will, will help diminish it. Yeah, but it just has to be repeated season after season. Um, some people will turn a sick, if it's a really heavy infestation, just turn it into lawn and mow it every year and that will eventually exhaust it and then you've got to, then you've got to deal with the lawn. Um, Especially the, if it's cooch. <laughs> well, then, that's what I'm going to say, cooch and kukuya. <laughs> Um, I have kukuyu in my garden, in my lawn, because it was here uh, when I came here, and it's it stays green in summer. I mean, it has virtues, actually. You know, if you're talking about void space and open space or areas to, to you, you know, utility, utility zones in a, in a garden, it's actually quite a useful um, summer green grass, doesn't never water it, doesn't eventually goes a bit brown and tatty, but it, it comes back, pretty, you know, a flush of summer rain and it's green two days later. So it's got uses, um, but clearly not if it's coming through to the veggie patch. Um, 
So, I, but I actually, I just continue, can just continue to, to cut the edge. It's just being vigilant to, and, and it does run into my veggie garden from time to time. And I'm just pretty disciplined to make sure that I'm always getting it. Um, if you can't be on it every day, maybe, and it is on a fence line, maybe it just put a gravel strip or something for the first, I don't know, half a metre uh, mm. and just, just keep watching it. Um, you can, there are organic I'm doing the air quotes for radio, but there are organic um, herbicides. Um, this one, the trade name is Slasher. I mean, it's a contact uh, herbicide, so it's not a systemic herbicide. So if you spray your kakuya, it'll on a hot day, a hot sunny day, if you spray it, it'll die within. Well, it'll it'll yeah look like it dies straight away, but it will come back pretty quickly. Um, and my experience with that is that. That's not particularly very long-term effective. No, Slasher doesn't really do much for perennial weeds and Kaiku mm. is a perennial plant. So as Tim says, it might burn off the top growth and make the leaves disappear, uh, but underneath the ground, the runners are, are still tickety-boo, unfortunately. It, it I mean, looks spectacular for the, you know, when you, yeah. on a hot day, you put it on, you're, wow, I have really nailed this thing. Yeah. And then a couple of days later, it's, it's back, yeah. Mm. Yeah. What about... Um, and can I make a suggestion, uh, again... Uh, organic herbicides using air quotes don't whatever you do use salt which is something mm. i see recommended it's become this sort of you know it's going around the internet that that people should use salt as a herbicide yes salt definitely is a herbicide um but it it's also a soilicide Exactly, a soilicide, that's right. It will kill all of your soil growth. The Romans used to salt the fields of their enemies to stop them being able to grow crops to make them dependent on the Romans. So, you know, it was it's, a, it's an instrument of war, salt. It's not, it's not something that you should use uh, anywhere near your vegetable patch. Now, perhaps on paved areas, if you've got weeds coming up through paving, through cracks in paving, fine, use it there, but nowhere near your your vegetable patch or anywhere you want to grow plants. So, you know, this, this is the thing. I think people make this distinction between chemical um, herbicides and and nice, friendly, organic ones. But salt, sodium chloride, is a, is a chemical. At least glyphosate has the, the, the good grace to break down when it's out of solution. Salt certainly does not. So be very circumspect about what you read on the internet. Absolutely. And, and I, would, I would note a caution too on that too for a driveway or a path or something. Salt's quite mobile. Like it's, mm. it's very soluble, so you know, you know, you'll probably if you get a, a, a deluge of rain or even just natural irrigation or, or just water movement, you end up with it running downhill and concentrating somewhere, which might not be the the path you put it on. Mm. And for, That's true. for your path, what's wrong with boiling water? Yes, yeah. true. If you've yep. got the time, do that. Now I have a question for you, boys. What about that herbicide which is only for monocots? Is only for grass? I can't think of its name. I don't have much experience with selective herbicides, I'm afraid. Mm. I, can't I, don't, I, I typically don't use them much. I do know that there's, well, the weed and feed product that is, well, that's kind of the opposite, isn't it? That hits broadleaf. Uh, um, what are they called? Picloram or something is the, the chemical. And they were the ones that were associated with the um, compost, compost um, uh, contamination that was, that was um, coming back into people's home compost. Uh, through through um, recycling plant green waste green waste recycling plants, no. uh, so I think I don't know. I'm actually no expert on selective herbicides either. No. So I probably I probably should just 
Um, well, she's from. no. Well, she's she'll be pleased because she's organic. So really, uh, she has Look, I think to hand weeding. It's it's going to be hand weeding then. I'm afraid. Mm. Or... And you know, at, at least um, uh, Kaiku has got very thick runners. They're easy to identify. They're easy to handle. They're not you know really fine and. Cooch is worse. Cooch is a real problem. And I breaks. hate it. Mm. Yeah, and that's where it has to be some sort of break, maybe like um, you know some sort of. I mean, she talked about a concrete like a moat. Barrier, but yeah, some sort of yeah, something where you can watch it and see it and, and deal with it. Some clear, clear so area. The old-fashioned way of edging a garden bed, which is digging a, a V into mm. into the soil, so you can actually yep. see. So she could get somebody to come in and just dig that V, because I think she was quite elderly. Um, that, that, is, that is exactly what Mike uh, um, Tim, so you're I, breaking up. So I don't have proper garden edging. Oh, sorry. Is that better now? Yes, that's better. No? Yeah. So, no. Okay. And Maybe uh, I was getting a bit exuberant. <laughs> and we also have had a caller from East Melbourne who says that who wanted to share their experience of the native hibiscus. She pulled it out of the ground completely and it grew back. Oh, that's, that's very impressive. <laughs> so very that would impressive. Ex- that would explain why my two-thirds pruning didn't harm it. Yeah. So did it, did it grow back from root cuttings? It is must that, have. Is that what she's suggesting? Okay, wow, that's interesting. That yeah, well, really she has decided me. that she should let it live now if it's prepared to fight back that hard. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> Which is not the attitude I would take to cooch. <laughs> no. <laughs> Now, I've got some more come in. Good morning and thank you for your program. This is Evelyn from Surrey Hills. Are fastidia trees, Carpinus betulus, Ginkgo, Lemon, Lime, Spire, have the same root system as the normal variety? I'm trying to plant trees that are not invasive, planting on the one side of a fence and where there's a sewerage easement. Hmm. I don't. I don't know. I wouldn't have thought that the root system would also be fastigiate. What? What? What do you no. think, Tim? I, oh, I know definitely that that, that ginkgo is grafted, uh, and the mm. uh, well, carpinus the betula, carpinus hornbeam. Mm. They're they're not grafted, as far as I know. I, I know for definite that the the ginkgo is is grafted. Mm. So, but that that is that is not necessarily a problem in terms of the roots. Um, running away. I mean, you think about a ginkgo tree, you don't typically get suckers of a ginkgo running, you know, all around it. And also, um, unless the sewerage is old. Yes, which and is that's the crucial point. Very unpleasant thought, but it will be in plastic and the roots will never find out that it's there. This is a very common, uh, we get this question a lot uh, on this program and all through horticulture is, you know, people are concerned about the tree roots getting into their pipes and whatever pipes it is. People have to remember that if the pipes are in good nick, like you say, that the trees don't know they're there. Mm. Like if there's no leakage, the tree will not. The tree root will go straight past the, a, a, a pipe. It is only if it's leaking moisture that the tiny little root hairs will get into that crack and then will break the pipe. Um, I, there are there are concerns, I suppose, if you've got a tree root that is so big and it presses against a rock or something that's on a, that's in a pipe that can compress the pipe and then eventually make it break it, that's possible. But I think the more likely route for tree infestation of pipes is a broken pipe in the first place. Mm-hmm. Yes. Uh, d- different species of trees have a different uh, kind of root system as well. You know, for example, an oak tree has has roots which are actually quite deep and quite fibrous, whereas something like a, like a fig, an edible fig, has quite thick roots that are designed to find 
water, groundwater, and then just increase in girth. So, you know, um, it might be choosing the right species of tree that has a, a, the, the right quality of root system. And I would have thought not because of the sewerage, but I find, for example, the green gauge is an absolute shocker at setting, sending up suckers through my garden. So she definitely doesn't want a tree, a tree that suckers. And that's, that's probably most likely the rootstock rather yeah. than the, the top. Because yes, the, it might be a the graft. green gauge will be, it'll be probably grafted onto a morobolum plum or one of the, the standard roots exactly. that they use yeah. for plums. And they can be. They're prone to to um, to suckering if they get disturbed or struck or if. You, and that's something else to remember is that if you dig around a tree that's got a that's got a root system that's prone to suckering, you're going to make more suckering because you're wounding those roots and giving it an opportunity to then spring up. Um, and you'll often see if you've got little heels, they have a shallow root system and you, you mow too hard around, um, and it, which is the, oh, I'm going to mow those bloody suckers down, you're actually making it worse because you're actually giving them, creating scar tissue that actually mm. forces more suckers. That's right, yeah. And for me, yeah. this is a reason for not buying things that are grafted. Oh, shall I, would you, would you like to see an interesting lesson in grafting in my, in my garden? Shall I take you out and show you? Absolutely. All right, let's go and have a look. For the, for the listeners at home, Simon's just popped his hat on and is now heading out the front door. <laughs> and while I he, am, I have to while have I got he, any shoes. Oh, there's no shoes there. I'll have to wear my Ugg boots. While you're doing that, I'll put another question to us from Castlemaine, John in Castlemaine. I'm about to put mulch on a large native garden. Is coarse wood chip best? Is it okay to use pine? So I would say pine, so. Pine needles or pine bark? Bark. Yeah, I look, I, look, I don't think it's a problem. Um, really what you're doing is protecting the soil from exposure uh, from the sun and keeping moisture in there. Uh, if, if And keeping bark, the grass away from the trees. Yeah, that's right. So, But bark and um, sort of uh, carbon material can actually rob nitrogen from the soil to some extent, um, but, but it takes then, quite a while to do that. And it's not going to be a problem for a native garden. No, because there'll be wattles and things which will be fixing yeah. nitrogen in the soil. Yeah, so I think that's, that's not a problem. Yeah, I agree. And another native question from Fernie. Is it too late to cut back Hakia Baradong beauty? I have absolutely mm. no idea. Well, if it's in flower, I wouldn't be cutting it back. My hakey is just finished. Yeah, so the hakey is I'm seeing around here are flowering, so or they're just finishing. So, I, well, I, I would always take my cue, and this is not specific to that variety, but I would take my cue from the flowering pattern. Um, and if it's finished flowering, that's a good time to prune, yeah. um, because you'll then go into a growth mode, um, and you, you don't lose all the spectacular flower. And I know I. I think they can be pruned, Fernie, because I've pruned mine. But maybe. Well, you think of hey, well, it, and again, this goes back to what we we're talking about before on those Mediterranean type shrubs, which you know we would include Australian natives in, is that they often can be short-lived plants. So pruning them really hard will actually affect the can can knock them back. So I, I, if if it's the golden rule is don't cut back into old woody um, old woody stems. Try and keep the, the pruning into what you can tell as live wood um, where it's, it's sort of active and growing and then you'll get a response. Let's go back to Simon in the garden. Have you got me? Am, yes. I, am I back? Yes, yeah, you're there. Right, yeah. great. So we were talking, we've been talking about 
well, I mentioned ladders. We've been talking about grafting and why you might want to graft a tree. Um, you know, most uh, fruit trees are uh, propagated by grafting, and that's because the rootstock of that uh, of the uh, tree confers particular characteristics on the overall tree. So as an example of that, I just wanted to show you this. I'll turn my camera around. Can you see this, this deciduous tree here? Yes, we can. And it's, that, that, yes, that's it's, Virginia and I. Yeah. And it is extremely oh. deciduous for people at home. Okay. It hasn't doesn't seem to have any little spikes of green, which all my deciduous that's trees right. do. So what that is, that, that's a seedling apple tree. That's an apple tree in its own, own rootstock, oh. uh, on its own roots, and that's eight metres tall. So that's in my neighbour's property, an eight-metre-tall apple tree, which means that, you know... It, it, the well, birds it would be very happy. The birds are very happy. Yeah. No um, one's netting that, any... are they? Exactly. So yeah. to, to do any pruning, any netting, any spraying, any fruit thinning, any harvesting, you need to get a cherry picker, basically, to do that. Whereas here are my apple trees in my food garden, and these are grafted onto a semi-dwarfing rootstock mm. and grown as a, as a fan in a restricted form. Oh, have you still got me? Yes. Oh, yes. Yeah, yep. we still got you. So we'll so, describe. I'll describe those to the to the to the listeners at home. So they're probably about what less than two meters tall. That's um, right. Yep. Pruned into a, a a V shape with branching going off in a vase, but but along along a single plane as an espalier. Yeah, exactly. So, so they're basically just um, two dimensional trees, really, aren't they? A Instead hedge, of three basically. dimensional trees. Yeah. yeah, it's a hedge. So so you can see. Um, Tim probably described it to you already. Um, if you're online, you'll be able to see uh, this, uh, the, the, the trunk of the tree, which is only about 40 centimetres tall, and then it gives rise to two arms, and then those arms give rise to more arms until the tree becomes uh, a fan shape. And so um, these trees are at head height, so I can do all of my pruning, netting, spraying, harvesting, fruit thinning, uh, without having to get a ladder out and endanger my life. <laughs> so this this is one of the reasons for um, grafting trees, so that you end up with a, a tree that's smaller in size. And, of course, these ones are precocious bearing too, compared with an apple tree grown on its own roots. So in this in this case, what the grafting is doing is, con is conferring these dwarfing uh, and precocious fruiting um, virtues to the, to the top stock. It also means because you've got... I don't know how many I can't see. There's probably half a dozen varieties. And just just out of shot, yep. there was a little ladder actually, Simon. I think I yes. saw. But just no, little no, step ladder. It's step ladder. Yeah. <laughs> Three runs is your limit by the looks. Yeah, um, yeah, exactly. Um, step ladder. The, uh, the um, the, so rootstock. The other thing there is you've probably got about what seven or eight varieties, maybe more, maybe less. I don't know. Yep. But the but the, having a consistent rootstock and a pruning regime like that enables you to manage them all in the same way because they all have different. Um, each different variety will have its own vigor and um, exactly. It, 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 so by putting each tree's a, a little bit different. Yeah, but a consistent rootstock means that you can manage them in the same way because they've basically got that characteristic in in them mm -hmm. from the rootstock. Yeah, that's right. Exactly right. And for those uh, people who can see online here, this, I mean, this, uh, I don't know if you can tell, but this tree has got a very high density of, of uh, flowers about to come out. So this is a little uh, heirloom uh, apple called Ribston Pippin. This is the parent of Cox's Orange Pippin. And uh, it's very, very floriferous. And so you get a lot of fruit from that. Um, 
In fact, espalier trees for their size give you a, a huge harvest. So here are my uh, a couple of pear trees. There's a Bure Bosque and a Doyenne du Comis, and these are both grown as fans as well. They're just about to flower. This tree had 26 kilograms of um, pears on it last year, and the one next door had 13 kilograms of pears. So, you know, but like I showed you, they're only as high as me, and I'm not a tall man. So, you know, it's a really I, good I, way to grow lots of fruit varieties in a small area. I give up on grafting. <laughs> okay. we, could, we could go on. <laughs> Well, you know, like, like we talked about, it, it swings and roundabouts with, with everything in gardening. There's no one right solution. Well, this is absolutely true. And, you know, there, I mean, some things just do, do run underground, some trees and others don't. And that's yeah. something to think about when you're planting a tree. Yeah, yeah very, that, that's exactly right. And I think like some of do... the ashes, the fraxinus are shocking. Or, or poplars are a real yes um, a real runner from from rootstock or roots yeah. generally yeah i think i think people plant tree you know trees are really important and we need lots of trees in the landscape i think that's something we spoke about off air yesterday didn't we guys but you know people are, are in some ways i think they plant trees too lightly uh, without thought about how they're going to be managed into the future and people also remo remove trees too lightly as well i think you know these are things that really require a lot of thought because uh, you're putting a long-term investment of time in. And there was a very interesting thing on the science program yesterday saying that acacias are the best at taking up carbon in the world and we have knocked most of our acacia forests down in this country. And for every gram taken up of carbon taken up by a tree, a kilogram of water goes through those trees and back to the environment. 80% of land water goes through trees, which I had no idea about. And in the Amazon, apparently, it's 90%. So that Yeah, I heard that too. Amazing, wasn't it? So those Brigalow and Mulga forests, which we've knocked down, um, are actually really efficient at uh, getting carbon out of the atmosphere, the atmosphere for the amount of water they use, right? Yeah. I thought that was fascinating, yes. Mm. I think there's a couple of things in that for me. One is that... The, the, there's two there's two approaches in terms of trees and how we manage them for 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 for, for um, climate mitigation. One is to plant trees, and we can talk more about that shortly. But the other is that old growth and um, established forest is a, a great sink. It's a huge sink for carbon, and that is probably the first step: is protect our native forests and stop knocking trees over, mm. because that's where we've got so much store right now. A mature forest actually, there was this sort of perception that a young forest in growth phase is locking up more carbon, but a mature forest is a big store and every and, and the soil ecosystem, the whole ecosystem around it is holding so much carbon. Um, so we've got to be more attentive to leaving like the Brolga forests or other forests out there because we don't know how much they're capturing. Um, and apparently mm. pigs are one of the worst releases of carbon and it's not like cows and they're farting. It's because they dig up the, the native, the soil in the bush. They dig it up so much they are releasing carbon all the time because they're so destructive, mm. which is part to your point, Tim, that yeah. not only do we need the tree but we need all the bits of, around the tree. We need, we need, and we need the, the ecosystem that sits around it and the soil that sits underneath because the trees actually protect the soil and the carbon that's in the soil. Mm. Um, you think, you know, we all, clearly we can't, you know, we can't 
um, well, the crops that we need to sustain our modern society need to be grown in an agricultural context. But we can bring trees and we can bring perennial plantings and cropping and protecting wild forest uh, in, a, in a way that we can do both. Yes. Mm -hmm. I mean, trees are amazing things, aren't they? If you think about what they are, they're just a, a bundle of drinking straws, really. Mm -hmm. And, you know, they... they, they... Now, you're, oh. now you're breaking up, I'm afraid. I'll, I'll continue on from what Simon's saying. So, yeah, a tree. So what is a tree? A tree is a... Um, think about what a tree... That, that I don't know if anyone's ever read the, the book Overstory. Um, it talks about um, a number of stories of, of trees in people's lives. And there's a, there's a character in there called Patricia Westerford who, um, who, who does an experiment with her dad. She grows a small tree in a, in a large container and comes back 12 years later, measures the amount of the, the tree mass and, and it's, in, it's increased by, you know, 50-fold over the life of the tree, which might be 10 years. And the miracle is it's come from the air. It hasn't come from the soil. The soil weighed the same amount. This is the, this is the miracle of photosynthesis. Mm. This is mm. what trees do. This is what plants do. But trees are the, the biggest manifestation of plants. Is they take, they take uh, carbon from the atmosphere and put it into something solid. That's, that's what photosynthesis does. Mm -hmm. and, and trees are this, you know, from a, look, think of an acorn that turns into an oak. It, it's a, you know, one tiny seed germinates and over the point of, over the, over the period of, it's called 100 years, there's going to be many hundreds of tonnes of carbon locked into that tree just by simple action of existing. Mm -hmm. You know, trees, trees are an amazing thing. The, 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 well, the fossil fuels that we, that we live on today are the response they're, they're the result of, of photosynthesis of, of trees of photosynthesis mm. and swamps being you know that's the carbonous carboniferous era was the was plant bonanza really mm. um, one of the things that they're doing in ireland is they're stopping the digging of the peat bogs because that is burning peat is the worst thing for carbon release mm. and of course the whole of ireland and quite a lot of other places have depended on just burning peat for, yeah. for centuries. Be and it's because their trees were chopped down for such, such a long time ago. I mean, Ireland and Scotland used to be forested. We think of Scotland now as being covered in fields of heather, but that's basically all waste from where forests were cut down. Mm. Yeah. So we're, um, we're at, at Diggers, we've been looking at tree planting for 20 or 30 years. Clive's been touring um, National Botanic Gardens and, and Arboretums looking at what are the best trees for gardeners and, and gardens and, and what are the best trees for us in our home situation, um, whether it be in a garden or even a broader landscape, uh, what are the best trees that we should be planting? Um, if we think about, um, there's lots of work in the urban forestry movement in, in capital cities throughout Australia. There's, you know, urban tree strategies, which is all around based around public land, whether it be street trees or, or park plants. Melbourne City Council being particularly good at trying to urban, have set up an urban forest. Hmm. Yeah, and amazingly good work. And looking forward, you know, to a, a changing climate, what are going to be the... So you plant a tree, like Simon was saying before, we need to think carefully when we plant a tree in a way because you've got to go, that thing's going to live for 50 years. I'm planting this for hundred generation. Hmm. Well, yeah, more even. So what is the world going to look like? And I think this is what uh, Melbourne City Council are doing, hmm. the urban forestry strategy, what the botanic gardens are doing. They're looking at succession planting and how how different trees are going to be suitable for the future. And, and at Diggers, we've been looking at what does is, what is, what is the home gardener do or what does the, the private landholder do to contribute to that? How do we mesh 
what's going on in public space with what's going on in, in private space. And there's lots of work for us to do as gardeners and as um, uh, curators of land, stewards of land to, uh, to plant trees. Um, mm. And in the last, so we're shortly we'll be um, releasing a new book actually on trees. We speak for the trees uh, where it's a, it's a compendium of um, all the sort of observations and, and um, uh, recommendations, our experience around growing trees at Heronswood, our experience of growing trees at St Earth, um, but also looking at places like the Waite Arboretum in Adelaide mm. who've had trees unirrigated in this Mediterranean landscape for 100, 120 years and learning the lessons from those. Um, so it's, it's, I think, I think with, with a rejuvenated interest in climate coming around, we've got Glasgow coming up later in the year, we've potentially got climate as an election issue with the zero, you know, net zero 20, 2050 targets, hopefully, or probably even better, that what can we do as gardeners? Mm. Planting trees and planting mm. them in the right place so that they don't need to be pulled down. Yeah, and, and the right and, kind of trees yes, too. Yes, which but, tree, yes. Yeah, so we've, we've looked a lot at um, Australian native rainforest trees that can take periods of dry but also have luxurious shade or um, they're, they're, not, they're not flammable. I mean, trees in a, in a rural landscape, I mean, where, where you are, Virginia, is a prime example, trees should be part of a fire management scheme. Mm. Um, you know, Siddhartha is another great example of this. There's a, there's a couple of beautiful oaks and a, um, an old... Um, linden tree planted next to green lawn that the garden is irrigated on the fire front. That's part of the fire plan. Uh, you know, there's, there's, there's plenty of work that's been done on, on the, the trees th that are going to mitigate fire risk. And the other thing that we need, you know, to the north and the west of our houses is we need deciduous trees. We need yeah. trees to be giving us a break from the heat but still mm. letting in the winter sun. I mean, it's just such a logical... I've got this huge um, eucalyptus right on my north side of my house. It takes out all the sun in winter and it's huge and I'm terrified it's going to fall over. Mm. But it's I, so I beautiful I can't take well, it down. The word you used then was logical and I think that's that's very true, Virginia. It, it is logical to plant deciduous um, trees, although they're not native to this continent. We have very, very few deciduous trees that are native to this continent, but, but they're really useful because they can help us to reduce our energy consumption. They can help us to reduce our heating costs in winter because they let the winter sun in and they help us to reduce our cooling costs in um, summer because they, they, they shade the house. So that is a, a logical... Uh, plant choice you know tim was talking about planting the right kinds of trees and that would be a logical decision to make i think unfortunately sometimes people feel that the best thing they could do from uh, an ecological point of view is to plant um a, a, an australian native plant and, and it better still one that's immediately endemic to your area you know from a few kilometers around now if i did that where, where i live i would be planting 30 meter tall messmates and um you know, eucalyptus viminalis in my back garden and they're just not suitable trees to be planting in um, suburban gardens in my area. Um, it, you know, as my neighbours discovered back in June when a 30 metre tall um, ribbon gum fell on their house at three o'clock in the morning. So, um, you know, sometimes exotic trees can be uh, a logically, objectively better choice from an environmental point of view. I mean, it's all it, another thing that's worth thinking about with gum trees is that, you know, this Australia... We have this kind of myth in our mind that it was somehow some kind of 
Garden of Eden wilderness. But actually, this has been a managed landscape for tens of thousands of years. And without that, um, uh, without cultural management te techniques, cultural burning and so forth, um, gum trees uh, grow unmanaged and then they become dangerous. So, you know, cultural burning practices might not be applicable in the suburbs of, you know, Fit Fitzroy and Northcote. So, you know, perhaps exotic trees or trees which don't require burning, like rainforest trees that Tim mentioned, uh, are more suitable choices in those contexts. And I do think that treating a whole continent as, as native has problems. I mean, for me as a gardener, if somebody says, oh, I think you should grow native, I say, well, I could put some more New Zealand plants in. And then they look absolutely aghast. But well, it's I mean... a damn sight closer than broom. Uh, absolutely, yeah. I mean, uh, Auckland is closer to Melbourne than Perth is. And, you know, then we've also got Norfolk Island pines, which is one of our most uh, iconic native plants. But Norfolk Island is closer to New Caledonia than it is to the Australian mainland. It's not even on the same continent as yes. Australia. It's in, it's on the continent, the sunken continent of New Zealand, uh, Zealandia. So, yeah, it does raise all, all kinds of interesting questions. But I, I think it's important that we get a conversation going about this and explore these issues rather than being sort of subject to, to these false narratives between or false dichotomies between natives versus exotics and, and the fundamentalism that sometimes accompanies that. So I think we need to take a more dispassionate look at, at what, you know, as Tim would say, the, the right trees to plant um, for particular contexts. I think that's very true. This is the 3CR Garden Show. I am Virginia Hayward and you're listening to Tim Sampson and Simon Ricard. I hope you're enjoying the show and we have now got some more calls in that I think we should just whip through. One of them is a little bit difficult because I'm hoping you two will be able to help. Leslie from Footscray has rung in saying her motor neuron plant has become too big and wants to know what what he should do but i don't know motor. what a motor neuron plant is no no i thought yeah no i don't know what a mutant motor neuron plant is, is either no. is, no, it, do I. is it a sense because you know, i know there are some plants that that like a venus flytrap mm -hmm. or um or the, the mimosa the that are the sensitive plant, which you touch no, them and they it's, move. No, it's very, very, it's grown very high above the gutter line. So it's obviously a large shrub or a tree. I think, uh, and, and our producer has tried to Google it and see if she can find anything and she hasn't been able to. So I think we'll have, I'm really sorry, Leslie. but it might, might need some clarification on what it is. I've, I've never heard of a motor, motor neuron tree. No. Um, maybe, maybe, maybe autocorrect just got you, Leslie, when you were typing it in. <laughs> and Robert Mitchum recently sprayed his nectarine for curly leaf, Robert from Nitchen, and thinks that's been successful. Roses for black spot. Now, of course, roses for black spot, what I use is milk, 1 to 10 milk. I find that quite successful. And wants to know if there should be any follow-up in terms of further sprays, like coside and things. Well, of course... For the, for the black spot or for the, for the leaf curl? I presume... Or for both? I presume both. Well, I'd say on the leaf curl, there's no follow up. It, there's not. There's no follow up because you've got to get it at that particular time, you know, just before bud burst, and it, it usually does it does its trick, and they'll come through clean. If you do get some curl after that, pick them off. Um, that and that that's the control. But um, and I don't really grow many roses. I, did I just say that? Um, I do, and I and I find I 
tend to, I'm very concerned not to spray them. The aphids and things like that, I like to use my fingers. And if I do spray, I spray just at dusk or dawn because I don't want to be killing off the beneficial insects. I think that's very important with rose. But if, if you're spraying for if you're spraying for black spot, then you, I use milk, one part milk, yeah. ten parts water. Just change the pH. And that's just to to smother the spores. No, the... it changes the pH and it makes makes the environment unhappy for the spores. Okay. Okay. But... I, I, I the roses I grow I choose because they have healthy foliage. So I just don't. If it gets black spot, it ends up on the burn pile, and I put something else in. So which one, which ones have you got then, Simon? Uh, mostly, well, I've got Rosa moisei geranium out there, Rosa rubrifolia, uh, Rosa cerisia variety terracantha, mostly species roses now. Yeah, and okay. I used to grow some damasks with her. Oh, Stanwell perpetuals healthy for me. Oh, yes. yeah. Yeah. I don't know about your areas, but in my area, there's going to be a black spot problem this year because we have had so much water. I've never mm. had some. I've been my place 16 years. I have never had water like I've had water this mm. year. And so that's going to cause a problem with the roses. The other thing, of course, is to prune them to make sure that you get mm. air through the plant or and prune plants around it so you get air through because that helps. But, mm. I, but I do think that um, I, I have found that the milk works. Yeah. Mm. Okay. And I do mm. live with some black spot. I do live with aphids. I just I, because... I'm when I moved into my place I had very few insects I had absolutely no little birds and I've got heaps of both now so I'm very concerned to preserve them mm. and I think the thing with for me with roses that is um so what I don't like about roses and this is confessions of a rose hater <laughs> what I don't like about roses is you and Stephen you, both well, yeah well they, you go the, the traditional hybrid teas, you have to cut them back. They get sticks in there and they, the thorns are nasty and they get a bit leggy. Um, the roses that I will grow or, or, or do grow um, are sort of the, um, the shrubby type roses. Um, so the multifloras, the, the spe- some of the species type, um, even some of the, the Eyes for You series. Yes. Um, they were, they were, and it's partly, it's partly because they're good, they flower well and they, they're a they don't get as much spot and disease issues, but also they have a year-round presence. They're a mm. shrub. They're, yes. They do something other than flower, and that's that's what I look for in a plant. It has to has to tick a few boxes for me to mm. make it into my garden. And, and flowering on its own, unless it's incredibly special, uh, doesn't quite get there. Mm, absolutely, I, I agree, Tim. Uh, I use a lot of rugosa roses in my designs for the same reason because I mean they do have a long flowering period, but they've got really healthy foliage. And when they're not flowering, they they just function as a shrub, which is nice. And you a get lot of hips. Them have good hips so, too. So yeah. yeah, hips. So you get some. You get some other, and you can get some uh, out of season interest out of that. That's right. Rosa mutabilis is another one. You know, I love really mutabilis. Good yes. I mean, for me, the kinds of roses I grow are shrubs, which just happen to be roses. I don't yeah. grow them because they're roses. Yeah. Um, that that holds no interest for me whatsoever. Yeah, so, and I think similarly, for me, the concept of a rose garden, specifically as a rose garden. It's difficult feel, to pull off convincingly. Yeah, and it, it, it often looks bare. I mean, well, I've been look, to some... But you see, but that is something else that goes back to a uh, Northern European tradition. Mm. And their gardens, I mean, I know, I lived there for so long. Mm. What do you do in February? You don't go into the garden. It's too damn cold. Mm. I mean, you just yeah. don't do it. The so only stick, place you go outside is, is when you, you're yeah. walking through the countryside fast to warm up. Mm. So <laughs> so when it's – but we, we have wonderful winters, so why mm. would we fill the garden up with something that looks terrible for X mm. number? I, I must admit I have got lots of roses. 
But um, and I do have some black spot problem. As I said, I use the milk, and I agree also with Simon that ones that are bad, they just have to go, because there are、mm. so many roses, it's ridiculous.、Mm. Now, and we do to... tend to. Oh, sorry, go on. I was just going to say we have another question. Hi, lovely garden team. We're looking to grow a hedge along the narrow side of the house, along along the fence. It's on the north side and has heavy shade in winter and blasted with hot sun in summer. It needs to be two meters high. Can you suggest something for Spiros in Williamstown? That is、How、a classically is... difficult problem, isn't it? It is. Yeah,、mm. it's the most difficult aspect to garden. How narrow is narrow? He doesn't say, but I would have thought it's on the north side and there's a fence, so it gets heavy shade in winter, blasted with hot sun in summer. Tough. It's well. I... Go on, Tim. Sorry. No, no. I was just going to say you go, Simon, first. I well, I, I was going to say it, it's. It, <laughs> I mean, the difficult thing we, we really need to know what sort of depth the plant is going to be because the taller a plant grows, the wider it grows at the base as well.、Mm. So,、um, you know, that, that's two meters high. They're looking for. Yeah, but like if the bed is only thirty centimeters wide,、Quite. then there probably isn't a plant that's going to do bamboo. it. Bamboo, you know, bamboo or well, a climber.、No, what about a climber?、No. Most... And climate. Oh well, let me let me deal with bamboos. Definitely not a bamboo that's going to grow in in forty centimeter width of soil. Even the clumping bamboos are take up a good meter and a half of real estate at base level. And then in terms of climbers, a classic mistake people make is to plant a climber on a fence, thinking, "Oh, it will cover my fence." And what climbers are designed to do in the wild is straggle up to the top of a tall tree and then go three dimensional. And they do the same on fences. You know, they get to the top of the fence and then turn three D. And so You end up with a situation where you're still looking at the fence, and you've got this gigantic wig of foliage. Except for the Trachea spurnum,、uh, well, which is more like a shrub, really. So,、yeah. and you you clip it as if it's a hedge. So that was going to be my suggestion. You, if you grow something as a wall shrub, so something like a Shenomalies or a Trachea spurnum, or something that you treat as a wall shrub, like like a hedge.、Mm. Or、yeah. um, Parthenocissus, the the Boston ivy and Virginia creeper, which are、yeah. really two dimension. Yeah, they will they will fill to the bottom. Even even、um, the climbing fig, Ficus pumila,、um, if if you train it well enough, and, you know, keep clipping it as it goes, it will branch and it will actually have foliage to the、mm. ground. So it's it's about picking something. Although one of those will probably pull a.、Um, A, a timber fence apart pretty quickly,、um, but if it was a if it was a solid wall something like that, but I, I, I like Simon's idea of something like a, that concept of a wall hedge is is、um, perhaps under understood.、Um, you know, something like a a, a garrier,、um, elliptica. Yep, because、mm. they get lovely tassels, and you can actually train them like you can with the trackless boom. You can train them in in if you want to get really.、Um, um, Pretty about it. You、fancy. can train them in fancy. You can train them in lattice patterns and things. So there's、mm. an. In, that, I think, I think that's a good one. And I think the Chinese star jasmine, which is the Trachea spurnum, that is a good one, because it'll take both the. It, it will grow in the shade, but it will take the heat.、Mm, great plant, but not a clematis, because that'll definitely just be bare, and then to the top, top. it'll. I think、yeah. also a chenomalies、um, would be hard to contain into the space. Mm, yeah, unless you're、perhaps. prepared to clip it every year, but then it becomes very sparse. I, I,、yeah. I don't think chenomalies is such. Well, it, you know, I don't it, know. I mean, the, it, we at, at the Garden of St. Earth, there's a whole hedge of chenomalies, and it's become through hedging over many years, it's got good twig density right down to the、mm. ground. 
and they, they, they're classic sort of wall shrub that they use in, in um, Europe because in colder parts of Europe, they can only grow them as a, as a wall shrub. So I think it just depends on because how they need the heat them. of the wall. Mm, mm. Yeah. So, you know, as long as they're clipped enough, then they, the, the twigs will ramify and become quite dense. Yeah. I mean, another really good one for doing that, but, but you need to be careful if it's weedy in your area, is pyrocantha, the firethorn, mm. uh, which looks a bit like a cotoneaster, but they're just loaded with glossy red berries in I autumn. I think they're beautiful. In some places, they're quite weedy. So in Canberra, where I grew up, they're... No, he's Williamstown. That'll be all right. Pyracantha, um, that's a good idea. Give it a try mm. and keep an eye out for self-seeded ones. Yes, I think I, I, I think that's a good one. I like that. Well, I hope that's mm. been helpful, Spiros. And Leslie, um, we need you to ring back because we need some – or I thought maybe you could take a photo of, the, of your plant and email it to us at gardening at 3cr.org.au and Stephen and his crew could deal with it next week because we've, we are struggling um, with – Stephen with will know for sure. He'll know what a motor your own plant is. <laughs> he probably will. And if he doesn't, he'll just make something up and make yeah. it sound convincing. Yeah. He'll have a story to tell about motor neurons. <laughs> and somebody else um, texted in, what about having, for the, for, the, for the person who is having trouble with the grasses coming under the fence, having a mobile chook or guinea pig pen that you just moved along the fence regularly. To keep That's it true. back, which I thought was a great suggestion. Maybe <laughs> just make a long run all the way along the thing. <laughs> yes, you have your chooks there. That's right. They'd eventually burrow under and escape, though, if I know chooks. Yes. Little escape artists. Yes, true. But that, yes, I think um, that was an interesting one to come up with, though. Mm, absolutely. But I do, I do. So when is your tree book coming out? Uh, okay, so our tree book is due out in uh, I'd be late October, early November. Um, so we're we're in the final stages of um, the proofreading as it as it stands right now. We on the printing press in the next week or so. Um, so we're we're looking to do we we're hoping to do a national book launch tour, um, but with COVID restrictions, it looks unlikely till the new year. We'll be doing a um, a book launch uh, day or a weekend at our Heronswood Garden in the middle of November, COVID permitting. I guess we'll find out today what what our roadmap out of this this current situation is. So we're we're starting to do some planning around how we can how we can get out there and and talk about the book. Um, we're also hoping to run a couple of online um, events where we're going to um, have Clive, the author. I think Simon's going to do some work with, with Clive to you know, do a bit of an interview, do a bit of a um, an online um, chat about what's in the book. Um, and really, the focus of the book is is to, I guess, enliven the conversation around trees for for, for people at home in their home gardens. And um, it, it ties in, I suppose, if you tie it, it, it ties back to what you know, diggers have been publishing books, or Clive and, and diggers have been publishing books for the last 20 or 30 years. Uh, and we've covered topics from vegetable gardening, you know, heirloom vegetable garden to fruit and veg, uh, through to uh, our ornamental gardens, as well as other areas of sustainability. And this, this is, I guess, just building on that compendium of knowledge that we've built over 40 years uh, around, uh, around the, the best choices for Australian gardeners, how we can inform gardeners uh, about what we do, uh, how we can sort of pick up the messages that we've learnt in our own gardens, and what our 
foundation stands for, which is around how gardeners can take a, a greater responsibility for for environmental issues, how we can how we can work with what um, what uh, what what we're given to contribute to the future of gardens. Um, so. I think the whole question about trees, we are going to have to be talking about trees a lot more. And, you know, we've, we've, got, we've got the public spaces, Melbourne City Council, we've got spaces like cemeteries. Now, some of the cemeteries are just shocking. They take the trees down because mm. they worry they disturb the graves. But they make yeah. the cemeteries such, I mean, it's a big open space. In New York, they've, they've recently dis- decided that the trees, that the cemeteries were the largest open space there and that they have got to actually start using them for the environment so with the cemeteries you know we need trees in cemeteries so people can go there in in summer and get some cool that's one of those Mm. in-between spaces we've got botanic gardens and then we've got people's people's home gardens and we've got railway sidings and you know there's all sorts of places which we need to use better have a look on have a look on Google on Google Maps and just sort of you know scan out through the suburbs of, of any capital city in Australia uh, and have a look at how much tree cover there is and you'll see lines of trees along along you know uh, streets or you'll see the parks where there's trees but but there's lots of space once you get out into the sort of mid suburban areas out to the outer suburbs there's lots of space for trees there's lots of space for an integrated forest um, that that would form all these wonderful um, environmental benefits. We know that, you know, we know that sitting under a tree on a hot summer's day is the best place to be. Um, you, you, will, you will reduce your carbon footprint. You will turn your air conditioner down. Even if you just turn your air conditioner down three or four, two or three degrees because of the shade of a tree, mm. that incrementally makes a difference. Um, so, you know, if you think about how we can all play a part in a continual link up of, of forestry, urban forestry in our, in our backyards and then further out too. I mean, there's, there's, we have lots of members in, in at Diggers who are rural members, more than half of our, our members. And we've got 80 odd, 85,000 members across the country. More than half of them are in regional areas. And, and it's amazing with the, the, the trees that we listed in our, in our magazine in, back in May, some of the order numbers were enormous. People who are planting hedgerows and forests mm. of, of, but they're really looking for something that's a bit interesting. They're not necessarily looking for your your, your tube stock eucalypt, eucalypt. They're looking for something that's going to play a part in their landscape, uh, and that's where some of the trees, like our, so the the crow's ashes and the tulip woods and some of these um, and the and the black bouillon, these trees that are Australian natives. We don't often think of them as Australian natives. You don't think of them as a you know you think we. As we talked about before, we think about eucalypts, but there are these options um, which, with a bit of thought, you can really integrate into a into a beautiful, beautiful and um, environmentally sustainable landscape. Mm. Mm. And Tim, is is Diggers doing an arboretum up at uh, Trawool? We so the the connection between the foundation and and the arboretum is that the um, so the the Blazy family um, have a property up at Seymour, which is um, central Victoria on the on the Goulburn River, uh, and with Clive's lifetime interest in planting trees, he's working with um, with Andrew Laidlaw, the, uh, the the garden designer from the Melbourne Botanic Gardens. Uh, and Peter Marshall, who's a um, well-known silviculturalist, uh, has a property of Braidwood in, in um, New South Wales. Uh, the three of them are working on this 
Arboretum Project, which is which is a it's a Blazy family project. So it's not it's not technically a foundation project for the Diggers for Diggers Foundation, mm. but but it will in the future become such, I imagine. Uh, and planting hundreds of trees, hundreds thousands of trees, in a beautifully um, designed uh, landscape, so that there's big copses of trees. I mean, copses in the sense that there you know hundreds of them in big forests, uh, and then void space in between. Uh, so there's a whole there's a whole um, Andrew does design. love a void. Yeah, well, and you need it with trees. So you need you need to be able to step back and look at that tree from afar, be and, and then walk amongst it. So the whole point is that this 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 is a, this is a legacy piece. We talked before about how planting trees is something that happens for future generations. What's the the saying? The best time to plant a tree was twenty years ago. The next best time <laughs> is now. Um, so this is this will be something that'll be you know look look back in twenty fifty seventy hundred years and we'll we'll get better in time. Mm. Um, so it's. And, and that's when I spoke before about this, what you choose to plant, we're conscious of, you know, in, in planting the arboretum is what are going to be the, the living examples that people can then look to and go, oh, that's the tree that I want that I want to plant in my circumstance in the mm. same way that we have done by looking at the plantings that are in botanic gardens in Melbourne, in Adelaide, in Perth, in Brisbane, um, in Sydney. And because they're already established, there's lots of learning. There's a, you know, and clearly you have a strong association with the Botanic Gardens, Virginia, but there's so much learning to be done in Botanic Gardens. And mm. one of the things our Botanic Gardens has done, which is quite extraordinary, is that they have done a plan to 2090. And, yeah. and one of the things, one of the reasons for taking such a, a long-term look at how to deal with global warming is, of course, the trees. Because mm. a lot of the mm. trees in our Botanic Garden in Melbourne are, are elderly and so the replacement is important a lot of them are riparian trees that are planted high mm. you know they were originally planted in the wrong place and we mm. need to plan what sort of trees are appropriate to mm. 2090 and and start getting those into the gardens mm. somebody's just texted in plant trees and join friends of the earth <laughs> Oh yeah, there's some good advice. Good yeah. advice, and or so, join diggers too. But yes, absolutely, join <laughs> diggers as well. And Paul from Richmond has said he's spending hours wandering the Royal Botanic Gardens, but he is fr frustrated by the lack of signs on trees in the Botanic Gardens. He wants trees, plants named, dated, age, origin, all that information. Can we please ask the Botanic Gardens to do it? Of course, I do know with the Botanic Gardens they have a real problem with them. Um, Sign theft. Mm. Signs are, exp yep. are expensive and... Are, it, it's very difficult, yeah. It's, it's, a, it's a very difficult, expensive uh, project, putting putting the information on everything and uh, so easy to lose the signs as well. Uh, you know, if, if you want to do it in a way that's subtle and appropriate and that, that isn't too ugly, it's really difficult. Mm. <laughs> yeah. But I actually think they do a pretty good job, a, a very good job. I, I know that not everything's labelled and that can be... Yeah, but that's probably for reasons of um, theft and economics. Mm. But there's some there's some labelling on. There's, there's a big. Uh, I think it's a taxodium, one of the um, the swamp cypress that's got some labelling on it, um, which has got more information than just the variety. There was a study done a year or two ago where they connected with an accounting firm and did some accountancy on the, the, the economic value of a tree, uh, and then related that to carbon sequestration, up utilities like shade or maybe energy saving. And they actually put a, 
an economic value. And, and there has been some science on this before. I know Greg Moore at Burnley years ago did some estimates on the you know what a tree is worth in a do put dollar terms on a tree. Uh, and it's amazing that the, the value of a tree uh, when you put it in those terms. And, when, and I think the, the, the work that was done at Burnley by, by Greg Moore years ago was about, okay, so that, that tree is worth, might be 50, 60, 80 grand. Mm. Um, and so don't chop it down because before that there was no intrinsic value on the tree. It was just kind of in the way for the builder. So they chopped it down. But if you, if you then talk in terms of dollars, a builder will understand or a property developer will understand that tree is actually worth something. Mm, and, mm. and you see that in real estate too. Green leafy suburbs of Melbourne are the, are the, well, it's partly their proximity to town, but also that it's their atmosphere that gives them that real estate value. Mm, uh, mm, I, I don't want to burn, I don't want to sort of, you know, boil trees down to a, to a, a, a balance sheet. But there is a factor there. Well, mm, and, but clearly, I mean, the other balance sheet is carbon. Mm. You know, yeah, that's right. Yeah, and it is just mm. essentially mm. important. Yeah, um, I was glad, Tim. I was very glad to hear that uh, Peter Marshall's on board with the Arboretum because I think he's a great advocate for. Um, you know, I, I was talking earlier about trees shouldn't be planted lightly, and I think Peter Marshall, as a silviculturist, is a really great advocate for. Uh, you know, planting trees with some kind of long-term vision of how they're going to be managed to for their own health and for the safety of people around them and you know it's easy to say it is easy to plant trees isn't it it's easy to go out with your little tube stock and dig a tiny little hole and stick a big gum tree in and think you've that's job done but actually that's the beginning of a process that might go for as you say 100 years virginia or 150 years and you need to think about uh, how the tree is going to be kept healthy and and safe for that entire time so you know i'd and Sometimes I'm, I meet clients who um, they, they want their fast-growing tree and I say, well, you know, it's not going to, in 30 years, this tree is going to outgrow this space and, and impinge on your house. And they say, oh, well, that won't be my problem. And I can tell you, I take a very, very dim view of people who say that. When you plant a tree, you need to think of the people who are going to inherit it, not just and, you feeling good about what you've done. And I think mm. one of the interesting things, you know, we've... You know, the whitefellas have been here 200 plus years and planted a whole lot of European trees. And a lot of those European trees, if you chop them down, have beautiful rings and live for 600 and 700 years. But it looks like they're not lasting as long here. They're not forming rings in the same way. Mm. And they seem to be, we don't know, but it seems that they're not going to last as long. And of course, this is again, that thing about the cold. All those trees mm. in Europe just stop over the winter. Mm. It's so cold, mm. they've just stopped. And they that's when they make get their rings really well formed and it gives them a resting time for their growth. Whereas a lot of the trees here, they grow straight through. Oh, mm. not it also as fast, has to do they... with um, soil. You know, Australian soils are very old and so they're very depleted in things like potassium. Mm. Um, so it can do with, have to do with nutrition and also latitude. It can have to do with day length. So if you think, you know, London is 52 degrees north of the equator, mm. which means in summer, the, you know, they get 18 hours of sunshine and, and winter, as you say, the trees stop completely. Whereas here we never get that day length during the growing season um, and our winter, you know, we still get plenty of sunshine and winter too and you see the way day length affects trees also when you see Australian trees being grown in the South Island of New Zealand so if you go down to places like Tianau or Dunedin and see the size of the eucalyptus globular there they are vast much mm. bigger than they grow here in Australia and they're young and they're only yep. young like I remember seeing that and same experience and being amazed at the girth of this blue holy gun. crap yeah yeah and Simon it's that you think that's partly 
the, the, that summer day latitude. length. Mm. Yeah, yeah, partly to do with latitude. Yeah, because D- Dunedin in, in the South Island of New Zealand is 45 degrees south. So it's already halfway to the equator. And the further south you go than that. So, you know, it, it's temperature regimes, it's it's uh, soil fertility, because New Zealand has very young soils, mm. uh, very it's rich soils. It's volcanoes. Mm. It's just a whole reason. And that's why it's important that, that people, you know, do trialling, plant arboretums, plant botanical gardens, so we can see how trees respond in our particular climates. Um, you know, you were talking, Virginia, about the botanical gardens planning uh, up to 2090. Uh, listeners might be surprised to hear that uh, Melbourne City Council are planning for Melbourne to have the same climate as Dubbo has now by that time. Mm. So we're going to be planting trees that are appropriate now for the central west of New South Wales. Uh, that's that's quite a sobering thought, I think. Very sobering. Mm. And all the other things with it, that there are going to be the worst storms, etc. Chloe's mm. just texted in, loving the tree talk and your garden, Simon. <laughs> Thank you, Chloe. Glad, glad to hear you're watching online. <laughs> and we've got two more questions. I have two native limes that look poorly. They are in pots. Any advice? I don't have them well, in pots. I've got them in the ground and um, they've adored my... I mean, I do have volcanic soil. I've got that red soil. They, they, not- they love pots. They, if in the right circumstance, they will love pots. Um, so... I'd suspect, I mean, it's kind of the classic, the, the classic issues that you sort of the checklist you go through in a pot, in a, in a pot grown plant. Does it, is it got drainage? So in citrus, particular micro citrus, the, the native limes will detest, uh, you know, do, especially this time of the year. And you see this all the time. Do not put a dish underneath a pot. None of the, the pot, in fact, for in basically for no pots, need a dish underneath them. Maybe if you're indoor. Lemongrass. My lemongrass does. Oh, yeah, okay. Yeah, anything anything that's a, a bog plant. plant. Fair enough. <laughs> yeah, okay, I'll, I'll pay that. Um, but certainly for citrus, they need good drainage. And remember, the potting media that, that is used today, the, potting, the commercial potting media that we buy, is designed to drain. Uh, it's not designed to, to, to hold water um, with, a, with a dish underneath. So I'll talk about that. I think about that. I think about um, does it is it getting watered enough through the summer? So you know, it, one day of dry has, on a, has a pot, the potting mix day, been changed? Nutrition is it, is it is the potting mix starting to get compacted? Um, so I I think the action that I would suggest is um, knock it out of the pot, have a look to see if there's root root bound or whether the, the potting media is is compacted, um, and then you know give give the root depending on the size of the root ball give it a give it a tickle around the the perimeter um put into a larger pot with some fresh potting media and give and, it a feed and maybe use native potting mix i don't usually advise that but if the potting mix is it could well, it'll be grafted onto a trifoliata rootstock right you know so, so yeah it I, I, yeah well it mm. might not be actually simon some of the some of the micro citrus are actually grown on their own roots i think okay and, uh, so it, it might be, but it doesn't really matter. I think in, uh, they're a pretty heavy feeder anyway. So I would probably go with a with a, with a standard mix, and it wouldn't wouldn't be a problem to feed it up, um, especially this time of the year. Yeah, I think it's also worth noting that micro citrus, our native finger limes, have a, a sort of juvenile phase where they can look really scraggy too. You know, they've got very fine twigs that look like chicken wire. They've got very small foliage, and they can look really ratty when they're young, but they do eventually grow out of it. Very good point, Simon. Mm -hmm. Maybe they're just young. 
She's also really unhappy because she's got a currawong that's taken residence and is just destroying her yard, pulling out cuttings, digging into everything, scaring everything else off. <laughs> she lives in <laughs> reservoir. And of course, I've got t- teenage crows doing that at the moment. So this always this time of year, uh, I get these teenage crows that have just fledged and they're exploring the world and they're just little thugs. They pull things out they nip off flowers and they're just like teenagers you know oh i don't understand this let's wreck it (laughs) (laughs) vandals were they were they what got your little might have been some narcissus or something i think i saw on your instagram cockatoos that was cockatoos oh okay so yeah okay which uh which they're more they're kind of grown up bullies now aren't they They're sort of yeah absolutely well i mean cockatoos perform cognitive tests at the same level as a two-year-old human so they're like toddlers except mm. they live for 70 years so they're like terrible twos for decades and they teach their terrible two behavior to their own children and yeah they just come and wreck stuff for the fun of it but only for this very short time of the year it's really only mm. late winter early spring or what's called one yarra time up here in on Jarjalbaru country. So, yeah. Well, <laughs> some, somebody, one of the parrots, I don't know which one, went through and just ate half of all my Vulcan magnolias, just ate half of them, you know, took mm. half of the plant off and the rest, I mean, half of the flower off and the rest sat there. So from one mm. side, they looked okay. <laughs> from the other side, they looked shocked. Oh, no. And the currawongs, one of the th- things that's happening with birds in, in Victoria is the kookaburras are having trouble. And with the currawongs, so many of them have moved down with the warmer winters. Mm-hmm. Uh, kookaburras are having trouble finding nesting spots. Oh, oh. Really? So we're I, encouraged to put kookaburra nests in, into our trees. Well, you know. what is it, how is a kookaburra nest different to a normal nesting hollow? Or... I think it's the size. Right. I think that their size has become more threatened than that size was previously. And they're mm. losing the battle to get them. Well, we have a um, there's a there's a, a messmate tree that, that's in the in the forest right next to our house that we see you know from our back deck, and it's got a nesting hollow, um, a natural you know limb fell off and a proper nesting hollow, and every year at this time of the year we watch the battle between the wood ducks, the rosellas, mm-hmm. and the sulphur crested cockatoos to see who wins it. I think the cockatoos have won actually. <laughs> well, but they is... won last year, and we watched their their fledgling chick which was still quite large because they, they'd get quite large before they head off for, this would have been around, must have been about January, February, spent two or three days coming in and out of the nesting hollow, uh, flapping its wings, hanging on. And we we actually watched its first flight and you know, flew across the house and then flew off into the distance and then they're gone. And they were gone until... What, you know, which, what species was that, sorry? A, a sulphur-crested cockatoo. Oh, okay. Yeah, right. There is a wonderful bit on last night's Gardening Australia about a fellow in Elstonwick who has been absolutely preserving the birds around there. It's really interesting. So any of you who can bear to be inside or go onto your ABC iView and just have a look at that piece on Elstonwick on Gardening Australia last night. It was just inspiring about how somebody can really do something to save birds. Elstonwick was the first place I ever heard a uh, a, a um, uh, powerful owl calling, and I'd, I'd never heard one before. And here it is, woo up in Elstonwick. Was oh wow, wow. Okay, yes, there is. A- occasionally, there's one in the botanic gardens, which is just fabulous. Yeah, and we right. all get excited, and and you pick it when you see bits of dead possum on the ground. Yeah. I think, oh, must be an owl around. 
<laughs> we have one more. While, while we're, just while we're talking birds, quickly sure. before that one, just shout out to Aussie Backyard Bird Count. Um, ah, so yes. I think it's it's in probably in a month or so in October, about the eighteenth of October, um, where you can sit in your backyard and you do your ten minute session and you record how many birds you see, and it goes into a big database, which um, which is really useful bit of citizen science. Mm. Check it out on the and, web. And of course, we've just had hoot detectives too through uh, on the ABC Science people uh, helping out with the with the owl calls around Australia. Oh, was that, was yeah, that, was so, that what you, just why you were so well practiced just then on the power? <laughs> no, no, just hearing about Elston Wick reminded me about it. Oh no, I'm thinking of Eltham. I heard it in Eltham, not in Elston Wick. I knew oh, it was that makes much more sense. <laughs> yeah, I was thinking, but you never know. Eltham. <laughs> That's true. Now I have another quick question. Certainly. Anyone have any success with in eliminating Lily Pilly Calypso Beetle? No, I, I've never heard of such a thing, I'm afraid. Sorry. I've heard of it, but I don't grow Calypso lily pillies beetle. particularly. I know lily pillies get bacillus. Lily pillies and Syzygium get the little bubble um, yes. perforation on the leaf of the psyllid, which is a little insect. But I don't know of that one. I think we'll have to throw that one forward, which we will I think that's do. another autocorrect. Psyllid, Calypso, they've both got a PSY in them. Yeah, I think I doubt something's it. gone on there. No, I think she's probably we'll add that to the motor neuron list then. Yeah, <laughs> yes. Yeah, so, well, I think we'll send that to Chloe and AB because they're a bit better at the, being very native specific than than we are. Yeah. We haven't had anyone from last week throw to us. No, oh, no, yes. no. Those two ones I brought up early were from last. Oh, week. okay, good, yeah. good. Yeah. But I feel like we're playing our part then. Yeah, yeah. No, <laughs> definitely. Yes, and uh, we, I mean, it's one of the things that's so wonderful about this show. We have so many different people on. One week there will be the right person. Yes, absolutely. We don't quite know when it'll be necessarily. But, yes, planting two golden wattles in the backyard dropped my temperature by at least five degrees in summer, if not more. Yes, that's true. Ooh. Yes. Well, in a, in a way, a little bit surprising that golden wattles would produce that much shade, actually, mm. because, I mean, I, they wouldn't have been my first choice as a shade tree because mm. they're quite they're quite sparse. sparse. It's a beautiful tree, and clearly it's our national floral emblem. Um, and, and at this time of the year is spectacular to wander through the bush and, and see those pops of colour. But wouldn't have been my first choice of, of a shade tree. But great to hear that it's had... In fact, the shade tree, in terms of acacia, probably something like a... a um, uh, blackwood would be a would be a better tree, um, longer lived, mm. um, perhaps a bit of a denser foliage. They can have a beautiful stature. They're also allelopathic, the um, blackwood wattles, mm. so they do try to murder anything growing around them with their uh, toxic leaf litter. So you know, swings and roundabouts. Yes, I've... but I mean, golden wattles got beautiful flowers. No two ways about that. Yeah, I when. In suburban gardens, I always say I suggest to people that they plant um, crab apples because you know they're not too big. They are deciduous, so you get that winter sun. Possums love yep. them though. That's the only problem, isn't it? Mm. Yes, yes. Horses, of course. Possums, I mean, love any, possums love anything in the rosaceae family, don't exactly. they? Exactly. Really. Yep. So apples, ap- peaches, roses, raspberries, peaches, crab yeah. apples, yeah, strawberries. So, they're a bit like us. <laughs> yeah, that's true. Yes. 
What's your other question, Virginia? Well, I've got a comment here. There is a great farm tree demonstration plantation signposted on the Newell Highway near Finlay. has been very useful in our Nagambi plantings. The People Ooh. and Parks Foundation are currently running a nature-packed campaign to encourage people to get out and connect with nature. The theme for the last week of September, Nurture Native na Nature at Home, peopleandparks.org. Nice. Forward stroke nature pact. So oh, I tell you what, I'd grow if I lived up there in northern Victoria. Is is some of the beautiful Mallee varieties? Yes. You know, some of these little eucalyptus that grow out of a, a lignotuber, so they don't form a big straight trunk. They've just got a a blob of wood under the ground, and they have multiple trunks. But they're small in stature, so you can fit them into backyards. And a lot of the Mallee type eucalypts have the most beautiful flowers. They have the biggest um, flowers. Yeah, really spectacular. So if I lived in a, in a semi-arid climate like up in Mildura, I'd be growing mallees for sure. And yes, well, I, I grow them. I, I, I manage to grow most of them out. Not all of them. Some of, some, I'm too wet for some of them. But I've got, I've got the yate, mallee yate, and I've, a few other mallees the growing. The bushy yate. Yeah, the yeah. bushy yate, and they're beautiful, absolutely beautiful. Yeah, yeah, they're just, really beautiful. Picking up the, their theme earlier of um, inspiration from botanic gardens or arboretums, mm -hmm. the, there's a, the arid botanic garden in Mildura, or just across the border, I think it might be, um, has, it, it has exa beautiful examples. I'll so say if you're going to grow mulgas or, or, or mallee eucalypts, there's your, your finest examples. And you can go sort of wander around there and, and pick up what are the things that, if, if you're in that area, what are the things that are going to work for me? And this, this is the resource that botanic gardens are, even the regional botanic gardens. And I know that the, the, the Victorian Royal Botanic Gardens of Melbourne and Cranbourne are doing a bit of work on regional botanic gardens, you know, you know, preserving some of the, the, the work that was done years ago. Because William Guilfoyle, who designed parts of Melbourne Botanic Gardens, also did regional botanic gardens. I think he did mm -hmm. perhaps Warrnambool or maybe it's... Ballarat, he I'm did. Not sure. He did Malmesbury near Kyneton. Yes, yeah, 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 and possibly even Kyneton. I think Kyneton too. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. We, and there we, is some... we had some over eighty botanic gardens across Victoria when other states had one and two. Yeah, a hundred years ago. Yes, a combination and, and the, of, and... of people like Guilfoyle and gold. Yeah, right. Yeah, and, and I think whilst we don't have a hundred left, there is a good legacy, and there are some amazing trees. I mean, I think of the, the, thinking of Kyneton. I think there's a um. Uh, Chilean wine palm in the botanic gardens in Kyneton, which is enormous. Mm. And, and it, you know, this is saying what will grow here. Uh, learn mm. learn from what, what's already there, I think. You know, we don't have to There's also the a wheel. magnificent cork oak there at Kyneton Botanic Gardens. Yeah. Yep. You know, two Mediterranean climate plants, one from Chile, one from Portugal. So, yeah. Yeah. And even even here, I'm in, in Arthur's seat, um, uh, which has sea winds, which was a, an old estate. Uh, which is now run by Parks Victoria, and there's cork oaks, and there's 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 an interesting selection of, of cypress and uh, and poplars and oaks and things, which which show what will grow in this territory. Mm. Um, so we, you know, this is this this country um, has long supported uh, advanced, or, sorry, long supported trees, and so we can look at what what is successful. Now, very, you, know, you can be so, sorry. Go on. Very interesting. Else. We've had um a, a, something on the calypso beetle, a relatively new pest affecting lily pillies. The adult looks like a bright green lady beetle without spots. The larvae is pale green, shiny grubs. However, they don't suggest how to control it. So interesting. We still have to throw it forward, but we know a bit more. <laughs> <laughs> yes. 
I interrupted you, Simon. No, no, that's right. I was just going to make the observation that um, the, the other thing that the Ar- Arboretum can show us and, and, and Botanic Gardens is it's surprising some how adaptable some plants are. You can really get some surprises. And Tim mentioned Australian rainforest plants before, and there are some real surprises amongst them, like the Morton Bay fig, you know, which has this, this very narrow range uh, in nature from southern Queensland down to Beagar in New South Wales. But it seems to grow anywhere in gardens. I mean, you know, Adelaide Botanical Gardens. Of course, there's the big Morton Bay fig at Heronswood, which saved the old uh, house from fire a few years back. Um, you know, so it's a very adaptable plant that seems to grow in a huge range of climates, although it only has a small native uh, range. And then even more surprising than that, perhaps, are two of our native pines, which are the Bunya Bunya pine and the Wallamai pine. And these have even smaller home ranges. You know, the Bunya mm. Bunya is really only a tiny little area in southern Queensland and I think northern New South Wales. And again, it seems to grow anywhere. Adelaide, Perth, you know, Canberra, mm. and, you and- name it. And, and the, the Wollamai, Wollamai is doing too. incredibly well in southern Britain. Well, exactly. Yeah. I, I've seen them in, in Scotland. I've seen them in the Netherlands. I've seen them in, uh, where else have I said, Argentina. You know, they grow anywhere. Mm. How did they nearly become extinct? I don't get it. <laughs> mm. <laughs> yeah. There's one down the road from me here in Trentham doing spectacularly well. Well, I think the places where we see them, where they haven't done well, is where they've been planted in front gardens facing north, getting the north wind. I mean, we forget that they actually come from, you know, almost a canyon. Mm. And so they mm. must need a cool root growth, which a lot of those mm. places you mentioned will be giving well, but them. Presu- presumably they didn't evolve in that canyon. They, and this is, I think, this goes to why they're so successful Adaptable. in various climates. Is uh. they previous in you know they weren't much more widespread um mm. than they than they were when they were found in that in that remnant canyon and, mm. and i think that goes to why they are they grow everywhere and this so, so hoop pines norfolk island pines um, bunyas they 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 were further more widespread than they than they are right now so mm. it, it's, it's just a, it's just a happenstance of geological history that it's where they that's where they, where they that's lasted right. yes yeah we have more Forest. more on the lily pilly beetle it has moved down from New South Wales into Victoria. You can treat it with neem oil. And if you have chooks, let them scratch around under the trees. So it's one of those ones that's come down with um, the warming mm, of the climate. climate. Mm. Mm. So, coming, it's coming, I'm just Googling it as well at the same time. It's, it's, it, it, there's some references to it coming through from Asia as well. Mm. Well, that, that would also... That's one, one to do some more reading on. Yes. Mm, absolutely. And unfortunately, we're going to see more of it. Mm. Yes, and yes, I mean, that is the thing about the changing climate is we will see new pests and diseases as well uh, in our gardens that we haven't had before. So, you know, that will change, that will naturally sort of alter the the makeup of the plants in our gardens as well. So, you know, I guess my approach to the changing climate is is I, I see what thrives in my garden. If something thrives, I plant more of it. If it doesn't thrive, I don't persevere with it anymore. I just throw it out. Because, um, you know, I have a very low tolerance for looking at half-dead plants. So, you know, I, I think it's just a question of suck it and see as we move into the future with, with the idea that we're going to have more extremes, you know, of, of, of heat spikes and cold spikes and wet years and dry years. Yeah. I, I, think, I, think, I think there's a, you know, for, I mean, clearly we're, we're talking to a, an audience of engaged gardeners, I imagine we are, um, and I think that we we as a group can actually look to 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 make 
planting choices that are forward looking and that are that, so you walk into a you know a, a, a box store garden center you don't actually get that information you, you it's really the whole industry is around um, bright colors by me now and mm. I think it's incumbent on us uh, as gardeners who are a little bit deeper in this in this hobby in this pursuit to actually pick up and lead the way on what would what are going to be the plantings for the future mm-hmm. absolutely i agree tim yeah and and yeah. the other side of that is actually supporting those nurseries that also have things in pots that don't look fantastic all the time yeah they are actually so, very appropriate for our gardeners not just the ones that those... look good that's right, because quite often the ones that are better in the garden don't look so flashy in a pot. Yes. Uh, and that's, that's, that's us as an industry, and I'd take this on, we do this at Diggers, and I'd take this on personally, is that we've got to, we've got to put that out there. It's, mm-hmm. it's about planning. Well, it's, there's, there's nothing it's... wrong with entry-level drugs, is there? I mean, you know, <laughs> potted colour is an entry-level drug, but, you know, as Gatekeeper. we all become, exactly, yeah. as, as we drug. become yeah. better in our, uh, you know, in, in our, we become more educated as we go on with our journey. The other thing is Chloe has just texted in. The beetle is very difficult. Once it's set in, it's best to remove the plant as the only controls are systemic insecticides. So oh, that is okay. serious. It's quite nasty. And yeah. it is time for us to think about the end of our show. Today you, it, you have been listening on the 3CR Garden Show. You've been listening to Virginia Hayward, Tim Sampson and Simon Ricard. Thank you. That was lovely to have you, boys. Thank you. Thanks for having us. And we will have alternative news coming up any minute now. You've been listening to a 3CR podcast produced in the studios of independent community radio station 3CR in Melbourne, Australia. For more information, go to allthews.3cr.org.au.